0: This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for April 26th, 2023. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, although the pandemic is still very much with us, it's decreased to a much lower intensity, which means there's been a lot less attention paid to COVID and infectious disease outbreaks in general. But if you ask infectious disease doctors, a pretty pessimistic bunch, almost all will say that while we may be in a lull right now, we'll certainly have new pandemics in the future. So what should we be doing to prepare for these? We're in the midst of the journal's editorial board meeting at the moment, which gives us a great opportunity to recruit some experts who are giving this a lot of thought. Dick Wenzel is Emeritus Chair and Professor of Internal Medicine at Virginia Commonwealth University and the former president of the Medical College of Virginia. Kwarasha Abdul Karim is pro-Vice Chancellor of African Health at the University of KwaZulu-Natal and Professor of Clinical Epidemiology at Columbia University. Salim Abdul Karim, known as Slim, is also a professor at the University of KwaZulu-Natal and at Columbia. Together, they founded the Center for the AIDS Program of Research in Africa, or CAPRISA, and for their work in global health, they were jointly awarded the Noguchi Prize for Global Health. Let me start with you, Dick. This week, you published an article in the Richmond Times-Dispatch discussing the next pandemic, which you called Disease X. So what was your message?
1: Well, to begin with, I would argue that we need immediate, much more robust public health infrastructure with new insights into the interactive complexities of the modern pandemic. Let me give a background. Where would we start? And I would refer people to a book by Nassim Tlaib called The Black Swan. And what he says, it argues that for risk management, We have to prepare for the calamity, the next one, and imagine it's worse than the current one. And what he does is cite the nuclear accident at Fukushima and says it was built to withstand the worst earthquake ever in the area, never imagining the 9.0 temblor that actually hit. So what I'm saying is we should really begin to prepare immediately for a pandemic that could be even worse than COVID-19, perhaps more lethal, more transmissible, more easily able to evade the immune system. And one more thing, it's even more complex because today we're really complicated by what's called polycrises. These are the concurrent multi-system failures in the realms of international security, transportation, and finance. And the perfect example today is the cholera pandemic in Haiti. And what's going on there is not only a rampant pandemic, but with hunger and poverty and lawlessness we're now seeing the victims are disproportionately young children who are malnourished, and because they can't even get to the hospital unless you have permission with the gangs, the ability to rehydrate people early is also lost. So these poly crises, really, we have to take into account when we form our new teams in responding to the pandemic. So, Dick. If I think of your analogy about
2: Fukushima, not only was it built to withstand a severe earthquake, it may have underestimated what's possible, but it also may not have fully anticipated the consequences of a severe earthquake, such as a tsunami, that would then take out part of the resiliency of the infrastructure. With the COVID pandemic, you know, looking at what we're currently in and thinking forward, Don't we have to think more creatively about the consequences of a pandemic and the supply chain and other implications for infrastructure that we have to build in resiliency for?
1: That's absolutely right. And what I would say is the new response team won't look like the old one. You just don't have infection control teams. We have to have people who are expert at supply lines, as you point out, Lindsay, experts in transportation hubs finance, all those things that can go wrong, coincidentally, that impact in an interactive way the modern pandemic. So what I think is every country needs what I'll call rapid response teams. And I've used the term impact as an acronym to say, look, what we really need is international interagency involved in response to the pandemic. And we may need anthropologists as well, communication experts. And as Lindsay just emphasized again, the supply
3: side of how we respond. Dick, just to elaborate on that a little bit, you described two different infectious diseases, COVID, which is transmitted by a respiratory route, and cholera, which is transmitted by a fecal-oral route. And they represent very different sorts of controls. The kinds of engineering controls that might apply to an infectious agent that's aerosolized require HVAC and all sorts of other engineering whereas cholera speaks to the water supply. And we have vector-borne diseases, which could represent our next big pandemic. And they're going to involve entomologists rather than engineers in trying to control. So you really do think very broadly about multidisciplinary teams.
1: Totally agree, Eric. And I think if we're looking ahead, we should be much more cautious in how we prepare for an aerosolized communicating virus, for example, and people worried about H5N1 than just the cholera. But nevertheless, either one can cause havoc. And you're right, we need the flexibility and the insight that we have from past pandemics to be able to say, look, we've got to
0: apply this one differently today. Kourasha and Slim, you've had a long involvement not only with health in Africa, but through your work with international organizations such as WHO with infectious diseases around the world. Slim, you recently took a position as a special advisor to the Director General of the WHO to help think through these issues. One of the problems with thinking about how to deal with the next disease outbreak is that responses have been very country-specific. So how do the two of you think about diseases like COVID that transcend national borders?
4: When we think about pandemics, generally, they will start as a localized epidemic. And if we take Several of the last epidemics and pandemics we have seen, their initial identification comes from clinicians on the ground. They're not identified in laboratories often because we're not even looking for those pathogens. So it's those clinicians that have to be vigilant and have to be the point of first contact to inform the rest of us. But once you've got those clinicians doing the work, you have the laboratory support and the surveillance support to ensure that that message is conveyed up the chain and interpreted with intelligence. In other words, you don't want to be getting too many false signals because then it becomes crying wolf. So you need to be able to discern which of those early signals is important and which is not. And once you've identified those that are important, the best time to prevent a pandemic is at that point. That when you think you've reached something, you're seeing something on the ground when it's still localized. So we have to build that. And that's built at a local level within each country. But that by itself is not going to be enough unless it is linked in some way to a global network. We need a global early warning system so that we can bring resources to bear because individual countries may not have those resources. And that early warning system does not exist. In fact, all we have are country systems. To create this global early warning system, it means we've got to bring public health agencies from individual countries into some kind of communication network. And that's one of the priorities now within the
1: WHO. One of the things that I would add to exactly what Slim said is we're going to require unprecedented international cooperation for pandemic control. And the question is, how do you get there? And the first thing I would say is you have to build trust between the nations that are doing that. And we're all in this together. We're all at risk and we all must benefit. We can't just have the wealthy nations benefit from any advances that we made in vaccines or drugs and so forth. So I think that we will get Trust once we have justice, if you will. And then once you have trust, then you really have cooperation. So I think this follows up on exactly what Slim says. We need an unprecedented, unusual looking new face for response.
3: You know, Dick, just to follow up on that, I want to ask Kresha about with all your work in Africa, of course, all of these different countries that you're talking about have different resources. They have different resources to identify an epidemic, the onset of an epidemic that Slim is mentioning, and to respond to it, given the differences in availability of clean water, uh, going back to Dick's cholera example, or the availability of engineering controls for some of these other types of control. So how do you think about lower resource countries' ability to both identify and respond to these sorts of pandemics?
5: That's a great question. And I think it comes back to this point of global solidarity. And if you can reflect on our lessons from HIV and TB, and particularly with HIV, you know, 70% of those infections are in sub-Saharan Africa. And it took two major efforts, the Global Fund for AIDS, TB and Malaria, and the US Presidential Emergency Program for AIDS Relief, to really take life-saving medication and make that available, accessible, and affordable in low-income countries. And where you were seeing the substantial reduction in life expectancy turned around, that's the kind of things we're talking about, that when we have pandemics, it's not just our country responses that's important, it's our interconnectedness and our shared vulnerability. And particularly where there are large inequities and inequalities when we work together to put up the best resources we have. And these investments that we've made in TB and HIV, we've seen how it enabled many African countries to pivot very rapidly to COVID-19 because some of the investments in human capacity development, some of the investments in lab infrastructure and clinical trial research infrastructure and health service delivery, the major gaps still, but those investments were so important to build on for responding to COVID-19. And I would add one more point, which is partnerships and collaborations. And these have been key in responding to HIV and TB. And lastly, as Dick mentioned, we're dealing with multiple challenges and multiple epidemics, multiple pandemics. And when we have a new pandemic, we simply cannot forget existing pandemics. And we've learned important lessons from the interactions between HIV and COVID, TB and COVID and HIV and TB, and that list can go on. But lastly and finally, I think when we think about pandemics, we also need to think beyond the infectious disease to its unintended consequences and its ramifications, unintended as we put public health interventions in place. And we're really talking about lives, livelihoods, and how do we strike a balance between containment of the infectious agents and still ensuring that we don't increase inequalities through job losses, etc.
4: And perhaps just to add one important issue is that, if anything, COVID 19 highlighted for us our interconnectedness. In that, when we reported at the end of November in 2021 that we had discovered the Omicron virus variant in South Africa, within a week it was reported in 16 countries. Within a month, in over 100 countries. So the fact that it's identified in one country, is that immediately it's a problem for all of us. And because it's our interconnectedness, it's our shared destiny to make sure we can control these at the earliest points. And that for me requires us to agree, to have some way in which all countries agree that we'll work together. And we've got to work together under some kind of global leadership. And the WHO is the obvious place. And so we've got to make sure that we have a WHO that's well-funded and that at the moment we've got a new pandemic, we can't have one country that's a major contributor saying we're not going to fund the WHO. We've got to find a way to ensure that everybody depoliticizes their contributions to the WHO and sees its importance, not only for the rest of the world, but for their own
1: benefit as well. Yeah, I want to just emphasize the point about polycrises and how all of these interact in ways that are totally unpredictable. And Michael Lawrence studies polycrises. He's from the western part of Canada. And he said this, which really got my attention about the uncertainty. Epidemiologists warned that a major pandemic was coming, but who anticipated that public health measures would interact with political polarizations, rampant misinformation, and extremist ideologies to produce so-called freedom convoy to bring swastikas to Ottawa. And what I'm talking about is amazing unpredictability in a society that has politics, social differences, inequities, and we have to be prepared for that. And maybe one way I would ask Eric is to incorporate artificial intelligence into our response because sometimes those algorithms predict things that people would never come up with.
3: It is interesting to think about how our early warning systems work. And getting back to Slim's earlier point, how are you going to identify that first episode amongst a lot of noise? Because if you look on websites and on servers that report on potentially new diseases, there are six things every day. Which ones of those are going to be important? So trying to distinguish among those, I think, is going to be challenging and maybe an opportunity for an artificial intelligence. But I think that in general, predictive algorithms might help us. I'm not so sure that we're going to have political algorithms uh, that will anticipate the kinds of backlash that we saw during COVID. But the more help we can get, the better, I think. I
2: guess I'm a bit concerned that currently today in different parts of the world, measles, Marburg, cholera, typhoid, polio are surging let alone Zika, chikungunya, COVID, things that we've sort of accepted in terms of our daily lives. So how to prioritize and how to develop the scientific prioritization, but also the political will to do the surveillance and the intervention? Because Croatia, you raised the issue of HIV. We had years to decades. That response was way too slow, but it was years to decades. While some of these others, as you point out, slim with Omicron, is days to a few weeks. And we have to have both the infrastructure to identify, but also the public health and political will to respond kinetically appropriately. And we have problems today that I don't think we're adequately responding to, any one of which could bubble up like a volcano.
4: So just to highlight the point, what we are seeing is an unfinished business that has new challenges superimposed on that. And for me, the big concern is going to be that as the world warms up because of climate change, we are going to see new organisms. We're going to see new natural spillovers from the animal kingdom, viruses, bacteria, fungi, into the human population and their potential to spread and become yet new pandemics, as Dick has said, you know, disease X. So that's a disease we don't even yet know. And so we can't even test for it. We can't even do, you know, wastewater surveillance for it because we don't know what it is. So those are going to be the challenges we have to prepare for, especially if it's going to spread through the respiratory route, because what's going to happen is that it's going to spread too fast. It's going to get one step ahead of our response as SARS-CoV-2 did. Because it got one step ahead of us, we were always fighting a rear guard action and not succeeding most of the time.
5: If I may add, I think that, you know, there's a very old and very basic epidemiological concept of the interaction between agents, the environment and people. And today it's articulated as One Health. And when we think about vector-borne diseases and the environment, etc., I think we really need to be looking beyond health and healthcare workers. So when we talk transdisciplinary, it also includes people who are involved in agriculture. And part of our surveillance system that we're talking about has to extend to that. I think also we have to strengthen the public's trust in science. And today we're dealing with pandemics in the midst of technologies that communicate And are doing a better job at miscommunication and myth transmission. So, how do we do better? And I think these podcasts and amplification of our messages are so important. Building trust means sharing information in open and transparent ways so that there's a sense of co-ownership of the issues and challenges that face us, bring us back to that interconnectedness at a level beyond us as scientists working together as infectious diseases, epidemiologists, but really this co-ownership of taking charge of the challenges that face us.
1: Yeah, I would love to just add on that you pointed out, Slim, the importance of polycrisis. Global migration is another one that's going to actually affect how we are at risk for pandemics. And climate change itself is certainly going to change things that influence poverty in some areas, floods in another area, forest fires in others. So the rapid response team can't be just infection control people, it has to be people with broad concepts to tell
0: us, hey, this is real, this is taking off, we need to respond quickly. As you've been saying, with COVID, we've recognized that outbreaks don't happen in geographic isolation. That's also true on the disease level. We've seen an epidemiologic interaction between COVID and existing respiratory illnesses, such as influenza and RSV. How does this complicate management of an outbreak, and what can we do to anticipate these problems? Well, one of the things that you might look at is if pandemics are
1: part of multi-poly uh, meaning some sort of interaction, we can think of it as a true mathematical interaction. If we begin to do more than just control the pandemic, but control the climate change issues, we might have dramatic reduction in issues that are going to affect us. And so I think to think about this as a multipolar approach as well.
4: Perhaps just to add that, in trying to find solutions. We'd like generally to keep it simple, but when you're dealing with multiple crises, the issues become complex and require more complicated solutions and ones that are layered, because if you deal with one level, you might exacerbate the problem at another level. So you've got to be dealing with it at multiple levels. So it's in a way, it's going to war, You know, not just with guns, but with all your armamentarium all at once, because you need all of it to tackle the multiple dimensions of your new health challenges. And I think that that's what we're not ready for. We've got to do better in preparing for that so that when this new challenge arrives, we've got the talent,
1: we've got the resources, we've got the know-how
4: to take this on at its multiple levels.
1: I think you're right. And the way that we might also frame this is pandemics really represent a national security issue for all the nations that are involved. And we're talking about threatening our finances, for example, our transportation hubs, creating widespread loneliness, even anarchy, as we know it. And so if we're trying to stimulate funding, I would argue that, look, this is more than just a health issue. It's really a national security issue.
3: We just talked about anarchy, and I don't want to leave our listeners with that very negative note. So I'd like to ask each of you, including you, Lindsay, what are the reasons for hope? What did we learn from the COVID epidemic and from HIV and our other pandemics that have affected the world that make you think that we're going to do a better job next time around?
1: Yeah, well, well, the first thing I would say is the unbelievably remarkable response in the new platform vaccines. And they just came out of ongoing science in a way that was amazingly uh, well-timed, and it had a huge impact. And I think those people who are involved with producing the science behind it and the new platforms, uh, the mRNA vaccines especially, this was very impactful. And I think that we should walk away with uh, Uh, that kind of cooperation that was a major help in early control of the uh, pandemic.
2: Dick, I agree. Having been heavily involved in the development of the mRNA platform and its clinical use, I couldn't agree more. But I think what we saw was the threat to all of society. And all of society saw that and then rallied together. And so our petty differences were put aside, whether they're national or bureaucratic. And we were able to do a response from identification of a pathogen early in 2020, by the end of 2020, being able to have diagnostics, therapeutics, vaccines with clear evidence of efficacy. I think that demonstrated what we can do when we come together in a unified response. And so that to me is incredible hope that with science and with society, all of society globally coming together, we can respond in a way that develops responses that are incredibly impactful.
5: The thing that really was heartwarming for me is best captured in an African concept of Ubuntu, which is we are because of others. And I think this coming together of people with unity of purpose in a way was just amazing, whether we are thinking about it in terms of scientists collaborating or whether we're thinking about it as governments collaborating. And I'm not saying it was uniform, but I think that's an important lesson that when we work with unity of purpose across the board, it's amazing. So if humanity is faced with the threat and we can be together and work together with our best interests at heart and at the center of what we're doing, then I think it is remarkable what we can achieve in a very short space of time.
4: You know, in the face of a global stressor like COVID-19, we saw the best of times and we saw the worst of times. And it is in the best of times that we have seen the amazing resilience of humanity how people clubbed together, brought together their own humanity to help others who were in a period of crisis, who didn't have food, who didn't have money. I and mean, it was just amazing to watch this occur, even in the poorest of communities. And I believe it's that power of our humanity that brings us together. And I'm hopeful that we'll take away from COVID-19 one of the important lessons that we've learned, that We cannot deal with this alone. We've got to take Croatia's Ubuntu message to heart. And at the WHO, one of the important tools that's being developed is a pandemic intelligence hub based in Berlin. And that hub is establishing those early warning systems. But knowing that we have a threat is only the first point. We've got to be able to garner our global community to tackle that threat. And that, for me, is going to be important, that we understand that a pandemic, by definition, is a global challenge and that we have to stand together to deal with it and to make sure that it doesn't repeat the challenges and the calamities that we saw in COVID-19. Thank you, Slim, Korasha, Lindsay, Dick, and Eric.